1: The late determination of Congress to lay the foundation of a city which is to become the capital of this vast empire offers so great an occasion of acquiring reputation to whoever may be appointed to conduct the execution of the business that your excellency will not be surprised that my ambition and the desire I have of becoming a useful citizen should lead me to wish a share in the undertaking. Location, location, location. Pierre-Charles L'Enfant knew when writing this letter to George Washington in September 1789 that the location of the new capital would be the key to so much, including possibly his reputation and future career. As L'Enfant noted, quote, No nation perhaps had ever before the opportunity offered them of deliberately deciding on the spot where their capital city should be fixed or of combining every necessary consideration in the choice of situation. Washington, though taking a hands-off approach to the debate over the national capital, was known to favor a side along the Potomac. After the war, he had gone on his trip with his friend Dr. James Crake in 1784, with one of his purposes, quote, being to obtain information of the nearest and best communication between the eastern and western waters and to facilitate as much as in me lay the inland navigation of the Potomac. Then the next year, Washington became president of the Potomac Company, a company dedicated, quote, to create a navigable channel in the Potomac River at least one foot deep throughout the year. While not being an expert in canals, indeed, Washington himself went searching and was unable to find anyone in the U.S. with that knowledge base. Washington served as a strong spokesman for the company, with it selling 403 shares of stock the same spring that Washington came on board as company president. Ultimately, Washington's attentions would get drawn away from the scheme as national, economic, and political woes threatened everything that the general and his contemporaries had built. But with the final decision to have the capital be situated along the Potomac, Washington was able to return his thoughts to that region of the world. Shortly after the passage of the Residence Act, Secretary of State Jefferson wrote a memorandum to Washington outlining what the language of the Act meant including the fact that the commissioners that were to be appointed, according to the act, to lay out the city were, quote, subject to the president's direction in every point. This was music to Washington's ears. Finally, something he could sink his teeth into. The first question became where the capital would actually be. All the residents act said was that it was going to be on the Potomac between where the Canoco Cheek Creek and the Anacostia River flowed into the larger body of water. Washington had 100 miles of riverbank to work with in order to plot out a 10 mile by 10 mile square district. Jefferson, being the student of architecture and planning that he was, made his initial suggestions to Washington, one of which would ultimately lend much to the feel of the modern D.C. Jefferson noted that, quote, in Paris, it is forbidden to build a house beyond a given height, and it is admitted to be a good restriction. However, his assertion that this strategy and city planning would keep down the price of land doesn't seem to have played out to the 21st century. What would ultimately become the District of Columbia was, in 1790, described by Constance McLaughlin Green in her study of the history of Washington, D.C., as follows, quote, In 1790, tobacco and cornfields, orchards, and woods had covered most of the area. A few houses had been built in Carrollsburg on the eastern branch. A few dwellings stood also in Hamburg, a tiny settlement located to the east of Rock Creek near the Potomac, where Jacob Funk of Frederick, Maryland had similarly tried to develop a town. Along Goose Creek had stretched David Burns' fields. His story-and-a-half farmhouse nestled against the slope near the stream's mouth. A man named Pope had owned that land in the 17th century and, having called his plantation Rome, had christened the brook Tiber but later generations who hunted the wild geese and ducks along its estuary had rechristened it Goose Creek, and that name endured locally until after 1800. While the executive mansion was rising on the high land above his house, Burns had continued to plant his corn in the fields bordering the stream until, in 1796, the commissioners had cut a swath through to form Pennsylvania Avenue. On the heights of the Potomac, upstream from Washington, stood the city of Georgetown. Laid out in 1751 and incorporated in 1789, the Little River Port had flourished for some years as a shipping center for Maryland and Virginia tobacco. For any who have been to Mount Vernon, you know that Washington, D.C. is only a stone's throw away. The decision, when announced in January 1791, the first presidential proclamation, by the way, actually elicited the first direct criticism of Washington that I found to date. Senator William McCly, notably a constant critic of the administration, wrote in his diary that, quote, I really am surprised at the conduct of the president. To take on him to fix the spot by his own authority, when he might have placed the three commissioners in the post of responsibility, was a thoughtless act. In this action, a few began to see a hint of self-interest in the American Cincinnatus, as both he and his neighbors would profit from the establishment of the federal capital in the area. That is not to say that Washington was alone in exploiting the opportunity. Madison and soon-to-be Governor of Virginia Henry Lee would also buy up land along the Potomac in order to turn a profit. But for His Excellency George Washington to seemingly be thinking of himself in this matter did make a few start to see him in a different light. There would be more hurdles to overcome in planning the federal city, but first the government had to take up the task of moving to the new temporary capital of Philadelphia While he was still in the area, Washington undertook a brief trip in August to Rhode Island, which, as you may recall from episode 1.4, had not been included in his itinerary for his New England tour in 1789, as it had not at that point ratified the Constitution and thus was not a part of the United States. He was joined on this trip by Secretary of State Jefferson and New York Governor George Clinton. Quick side note. Clinton would be Jefferson's second vice president during his administration, and we'll be talking about him a bit on Down the Line. One of the more memorable events on this trip was that Washington, while attending a private dinner, was about to turn in for the evening in Providence when he heard that the students of Rhode Island College, the institution now known as Brown University, had lit up their windows in his honor. Though it was rare for him to venture out at night, and there was a light rain that evening, Washington went to the college and walked through to see this sign of affection done in his honor. He then returned the next day and took a tour of the campus as well as, quote, inspected a merchant ship and dry dock, drank wine and punch, and really took in the sights and sounds of Little Rhodey. Finally, it was time to return to New York for a few days before he took his final leave of the city on August 30th. As described by Churnell. quote, When he left New York, Washington again indulged the impossible daydream of avoiding any pageantry to mark his official farewell. At dawn, he gathered his wife, two grandchildren, two aides, four servants, and four slaves for a last glimpse of the Broadway house when he suddenly heard the strains of a band outside striking up a tune called Washington's March. A glum Washington saw no surcease from the cloying adulation. Outside, Governor Clinton, Chief Justice Jay, and a mass of excited citizens had shown up to tender their last respects and send him off on a barge, climaxed by a 13-gun salute from the battery. The fanfare continued all the way to Philadelphia, where he rode into town atop his white horse with a cavalry troop in front and was greeted by Senator Robert Morris, whose house would be used as the presidential mansion while the Capitol was in Philly. Washington and his party would continue on to Mount Vernon while final preparations were being made for their lodgings. But one has to imagine the immense undertaking of physically moving the government, even a much smaller government than that which we're accustomed to in the early 21st century, from New York to Philadelphia. New offices had to be found for all of the departments. Government officials had to work out new lodging situations, whether that meant renting houses, as the cabinet members did, or renting rooms in taverns and boarding houses, as some members of Congress and likely lower functionaries in the government did. Congress was granted the newly constructed courthouse for Philadelphia County as their meeting place, but I haven't yet been able to determine where the Supreme Court met. It could be that they used some space in the courthouse or, considering the ill-defined nature of the early court, they could have migrated from one space to the next with no fixed location. Regardless, people, documents, furniture, families, it was all moved along to the new federal city. Philadelphia at this point in history, quote, was a cosmopolitan city. Praised by a high-born British visitor as one of the wonders of the world, the first town in America, and one that bids fair to rival almost any in Europe. A city of 45,000 inhabitants, larger than either New York or Boston, it supported 10 newspapers and 30 bookshops. Largely through the civic imagination of Benjamin Franklin, it boasted an astounding panoply of cultural and civic institutions, including two theaters a subscription library, a volunteer fire company, and a hospital. A number of its new residents would have praise for the city. Representative Fisher Ames of Massachusetts would write that it was, quote, a very magnificent city. Not everyone was pleased with the move, however. Second Lady Abigail Adams was writing to her daughter in late November, comparing their home in New York, Richmond Hill, to their new lodgings, Bush Hill, asserting that, quote, Bush Hill is a very beautiful place but the grand and sublime I left at Richmond Hill. The cultivation and site and prospect are superior, but the Schuylkill is not more like the Hudson than I to Hercules. Mrs. Adams, who had enjoyed New York and being so close to their daughter, only lingered for six months in Philadelphia before returning to their home in Quincy. Then, after a brief return in the fall, headed for home again, and did not make her way back to Philly during the remainder of her husband's tenure as vice president. The first lady, on the other hand, delighted in the move. During the months that the Washingtons were at Mount Vernon in the late summer, early fall of 1790, Martha Washington had convinced her husband to relax some of the protocols on their social life. In New York, to avoid any hint of favoritism or impropriety, the Washingtons had not accepted any private invitations. Upon her arrival in Philadelphia, however, the First Lady was granted the freedom, quote, to accept private invitations and to entertain her own friends as she liked. Indeed, it would be the remaining instances of strict protocol, such as her Friday evening tea and coffee receptions, that would be the source of criticism during her husband's tenure of office. The relocation of the government could not diminish the work of government, however. As we saw in our last episode, The War Department was awaiting word on the Harmer campaign and responding to the crisis when the bad news came. Meanwhile, Washington, just prior to his departure from New York, had signed a bill into law creating the Coast Guard. True to form, before Washington had arrived at Mount Vernon, Hamilton had already made inquiries and reported to Washington on his recommendations on both the dimensions of the first vessels to be constructed and proposing that the 10 cutters provisioned by Congress be constructed, quote, in different parts of the Union in order, quote, to avoid dissatisfaction. Hamilton's main work during that fall, however, was in determining how to move forward with his assumption plan now that it had been passed by Congress. The federal revenues were doing well, with the government actually in a surplus by late 1790. However, assuming the state debt would change that, and Hamilton reckoned that the import tariffs were already as high as they could reasonably go and not be injurious to American commerce and trading interests. Americans at the time did not favor direct taxation. Imagine that, people not liking to pay taxes. But Hamilton knew they would have to contribute in some way in order to pay down the assumed state debt. Thus, he prepared a proposal for an excise tax on whiskey. He had already laid the groundwork for this in his first report on the public credit, but in his message of December 13th to Congress, he outlined the specifics. The assumed state debts were estimated to be just under $827,000. His proposed tax on whiskey would bring in an estimated $877,500, which would be more than enough to pay off the debt. The only alternative Hamilton could come up with was a land tax, but that would hit everyone versus this tax on distilled spirits, which would only affect those who imbibed. Besides, the Tariff Act of 1789 had already established a precedent for taxing imported luxury goods like wine and tea. Why not just expand that a little bit to tax liquor made and sold in the U.S.? Hamilton argued that a tax on real estate, as it would be resented more by the people than the proposed tax on whiskey, should be, quote, reserved for objects and occasions which will more immediately interest the sensibility of the whole community and more directly affect the public safety. The main problem with Hamilton's argument was that whiskey was not a luxury item in the West. Sure, it was popular for drinking, but looking at the economics of the situation helps one to understand why it was an essential part of life beyond the eastern seaboard. The west was still developing, so there was little hard currency to be had. However, the settlers needed a means to be able to purchase goods and supplies that they couldn't make themselves. When traded out west, whiskey was just a barter item. But whiskey was also popular in the east and was much more easily transported down the river, across mountains, and on bad roads than the raw produce from which it was distilled. Once it got to the east, it could be exchanged for currency. Thus, unlike standard barter goods, which would just be exchanged and consumed, there was an actual monetary figure associated with whiskey that made it a more desirable trading item. In the East, it was a luxury item to be consumed. In the West, it was currency, essential to their economy. However, as Congress was made up primarily of wealthy eastern landowners who didn't want their land to be taxed and who knew little about the western economy, they by and large agreed with Hamilton and... Despite some grumbling from Southern representatives, surprise, surprise, the whiskey tax became federal law in March. There is just one other part of the report of the 13th that deserves attention. At the very end, Hamilton slips in the following, quote, to these more direct expedients for the support of public credit, the institution of a national bank presents itself as a necessary auxiliary. This, the secretary regards as an indispensable engine in the administration. To present this important object in a more distinct and more comprehensive light, he has concluded to make it the subject of a separate report. This report came the next day, and if you thought there was an uproar over the assumption plan, oh boy. The first controversial point was with the inspiration for this idea. Though Hamilton makes a point in his report on the 14th of mentioning, quote, that public banks have found admission and patronage among the principal and most enlightened commercial states, enlisting, quote, Italy, Germany, Holland, England, and France as examples, the Bank of England is the only foreign public bank that he discusses in detail and indeed would have been the one best known by his audience in Congress. This bank, as proposed by Hamilton, would assist with increasing the amount of specie in circulation, as well as help the government to more easily obtain funds during emergencies and assist in facilitating tax payments. Hamilton also goes point by point through some of the objections to a national bank, including that it would promote detrimental trading practices, including overtrading and providing, quote, to bankrupt and fraudulent traders a fictitious credit, or that it would remove specie from the nation and Hamilton counters each objection. He then discusses the other three American banks currently in operation and how his proposed bank would differ and be of better benefit to the nation. The report concluded with an outline of how Hamilton thought the bank should be organized in the enacting legislation. As a final alternative, the Secretary mentioned that if the Bank of North America the bank chartered by the government under the Articles of Confederation, was willing to adopt his key proposed reforms to serve the same necessary purposes as he had outlined, that would suffice as well, though Hamilton didn't sound confident that the latter would occur. The Senate acted on the bill first, assigning it to a committee for review on December 23rd. The committee acted quickly and turned around their version of the bank bill to the full Senate on January 3rd, a bill which, quote, was nearly identical in substance to Hamilton's bill, but with provisions numbered and reordered slightly. Now, I should mention here that at this point, the debates in the Senate were not formally recorded. However, we do have some insight into the workings of the Senate through a journal kept by one of its members, William McClay of Pennsylvania. As mentioned previously, as McClay was an opponent of the administration, Some of his commentary has to be taken with a grain of salt, but it offers us a glimpse into the workings of this body. From what scholars have been able to determine, it seems that the two main issues with the bill in the Senate were over how long the bank should be chartered for and whether legislation should be enacted to, quote, prevent the chartering of any other bank, thereby granting a monopoly to the national bank. Michael Koblenz, in his analysis of the congressional debate, makes a point of noting that we have no evidence that, at this point, any objections were raised as to whether Congress had the constitutional power to charter a bank. It seems from what we know that the authority was assumed. In any event, after some debate, the Senate passed the bill before the month was out and sent it on to the House, where James Madison was waiting. Debate formally began in the House after the third reading of the bill on February 1st, but it really kicked into high gear the next day when Mr. Madison of Virginia rose to speak. Though James Jackson of Georgia the day prior had questioned the authority of Congress to grant a monopoly to one bank, Madison took it a step further and questioned the constitutionality of Congress incorporating a bank at all. After arguing against the authority being present in the enumerated powers of Congress as defined by the Constitution, Madison got into the crux of his argument, which was that a broad construction of the Constitution could threaten the nation. Madison said, The doctrine of implication, or broad construction, is always a tender one. The danger of it has been felt in other governments. The delicacy was felt in the adoption of our own. The danger may also be felt if we do not keep close to our chartered authorities. To borrow money is made the end and the accumulation of capitals implied as the means. The accumulation of capitals is then the end, and a bank implied as the means. The bank is then the end, and a charter of incorporation, a monopoly, implied as the means. If implications, thus remote and thus multiplied, can be linked together, a chain may be formed that will reach every object of legislation, Every object within the whole compass of political economy. Essentially, his argument was that if you give them a penny, the government will take a pound. If you allow them to say that the federal government has the authority to charter a national bank, though it's not explicitly stated in the Constitution, then the government in the future will be able to claim whatever power and authority it wants to do all sorts of crazy things. When discussing the Necessary and Proper Clause of the Constitution... Madison made a distinction between, quote, a power necessary and proper for the government or union, and a power necessary and proper for executing the enumerated powers. In this instance, Madison argued that it wasn't even necessary to charter a national bank, but rather that it would be convenient at best. There was a problem with Madison's argument, though, that his opponents would draw on in the debate, but we'll get to that in a moment. Just as James Madison would be the primary framer of the opposition's argument, so too would Fisher Ames serve as the ideological leader of the proponents of the bank in the House. When Ames spoke on the 3rd, he addressed his remarks directly to counter those of Madison. Ames, in his remarks, conceded that the power to charter a national bank was not explicitly outlined in the Constitution but cited the example of Congress establishing a land office in the Northwest Territory in 1789 as one of many instances where the constitutional government had enacted legislation that was not a part of their defined powers under the Constitution. As Ames stated, quote, if Congress may not make laws conformably to the powers plainly implied, though not expressed in the frame of government, it is rather late in the day to adopt it as a principle of conduct. At this point, the government was nearly two years old. Why were these arguments just being made now, the representative from Massachusetts asked. Ames then defined his conception of congressional authority when he stated, quote, Congress may do what is necessary to the end for which the Constitution was adopted, provided it is not repugnant to the natural rights of man, or to those which they have expressly reserved to themselves, or to the powers which are assigned to the states. Ames assured his colleagues that he, quote, had no desire to extend the powers granted by the Constitution beyond the limits prescribed them, but asserted that he saw no constitutional reason why a bank could not be chartered given existing precedent precedent would come back to bite madison in theodore sedgwick's remarks in favor of the bank as sedgwick brought up the fact that madison had argued during the debate over whether the president had the authority to fire executive officers a debate that we briefly touched on in episode 1.4 that though the power to remove officers was not explicitly stated in the constitution that where quote the constitution was totally silent congress might use its discretion ouch Way to turn Madison's words against him, Sedgwick. The seeming contradiction in Madison's arguments, as well as the fact that, as the supporters of the bank bill noted, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation had chartered a bank, despite the fact that they had less power and authority than the Congress under the Constitution, ended up carrying the day, and the bank bill was passed by the House on February 8th. It was then sent on to Washington for his signature. But before we get to that, I did want to point out one other argument that came up during the bank debate that might resonate in the modern day. Madison, during his arguments, had brought up the fact that a number of the members of Congress present at the time, himself included, had been at the Constitutional Convention and asserted that the other members should turn to them to understand, quote, the sense of the Federal Convention and its construction of the Constitution. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, who had been president at the convention and who ultimately had not signed the Constitution due to his reservations, challenged this assertion of Madison's as problematic as, quote, the memories of different gentlemen would probably vary, as they have already done. There are arguments made even in the present day, 2017 as of this recording, about the intentions of the founders with regards to constitutional authority. But as Jerry points out, The founders were not a monolithic bloc that all had the same ideas, intentions, or interpretations. Not even four years after the Constitutional Convention, and here was a debate on the constitutional powers of Congress in a group which included people who were present at the convention. Indeed, of the eight constitutional framers in the House at the time, five supported the bank, while three voted against it. Clearly, there was not even a consensus then in interpretations on the Constitution but I digress. The bank bill went to Washington. Naturally, he had the pen ready to sign. Right? Right? Mr. President, your own treasury secretary came up with a plan. Well, it's not that simple. See, Washington, though remaining silent during the debate in Congress, had paid attention to the arguments being brought up during the back and forth, since one of those opposing the bill was Madison, who had been to date a trusted advisor Washington felt the need to consider the matter further. Thus, he asked for the advice of three of his official advisors, Attorney General Edmund Randolph, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. Randolph's two-part response was sent on February 12th. In the first part, he focused on the idea of implied powers and the Necessary and Proper Clause. Randolph, after reiterating that there was no expressly given power in the Constitution granting Congress the authority to create corporations of any sort, and returned to an idea that came up during the House debate, asserting that for this power, quote, to be implied in the nature of the federal government would beget a doctrine so indefinite as to grasp every power. He goes on to dismiss the bank's proponents' arguments that the enumerated powers of Congress gave them implied powers to charter a bank, before reiterating that, quote, the serious alarm is in the concentrated force of these sentiments. It may, without exaggeration, be affirmed that a similar construction on every specified federal power will stretch the arm of Congress into the whole circle of state legislation. Turning to the Necessary and Proper Clause, the Attorney General expresses his belief that, quote, The phrase, and proper, does not enlarge the powers of Congress, but rather restricts them. Randolph saw it as a note of caution for all of Congress. However, he also cautions against the arguments of the bank's opponents when he points out that, quote, "...whosoever will attentively inspect the Constitution will readily perceive the force of what is expressed in the letter of the Convention, that the Constitution was the result of a spirit of amity and mutual deference and concession." To argue, then, from its style or arrangement as being logically exact is perhaps a scheme of reasoning not absolutely precise. Basically, he questions the entire notion of the intentions of the founders as he reminds Washington that the Constitution was not a grand plan, but rather a compromise that was pieced together and enacted. Of course there would be disagreements on what it all really meant and who had what authority, But that's what government officials and checks and balances and all of the safeguards of the Constitution were there for. Jefferson was next up at the bat, sending Washington his report on February 15th. Not surprisingly to anyone who knows anything about Jefferson, he point-blank asserted that, quote, the incorporation of a bank and other powers assumed by this bill have not, in my opinion, been delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution. Interestingly enough, he explained that, quote, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground that all powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution, not prohibited to it by the states, are reserved to the states and to the people. Nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it is the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. The only problem is that the Tenth Amendment had not yet been ratified. Congress had passed it, but the requisite number of states had yet to approve it. And thus, it would be nearly 10 more months before that amendment became the law of the land. After this jumping the gun a bit, Jefferson continues to take on the bank proponents' arguments about how the authority was implied through the enumerated powers of Congress in much the same way as Randolph and the opponents in the House. He also returned to Madison's argument that the authority to charter the bank wasn't granted under the Necessary and Proper Clause as the functions outlined for the bank collecting taxes, obtaining foreign loans, so on and so forth, quote, can all be carried into execution without a bank. A bank, therefore, is not necessary and consequently not authorized by this phrase. In a truly Jeffersonian twist, however, after devoting the majority of his opinion in discussing how he felt Congress did not have the authority to charter a bank, the Secretary concludes his report as follows, quote, it must be added, however, that unless the president's mind on a view of everything which is urged for and against this bill is tolerably clear that it is unauthorized by the Constitution, if the pro and the con hang so even as to balance his judgment, a just respect for the wisdom of the legislature would naturally decide the balance in favor of their opinion. It is chiefly for cases where they are clearly misled by error, ambition, or interest, That the Constitution has placed a check in the negative of the President. Even if it ran counter to his opinion, Jefferson felt that the authority of the elected group of men that comprised the legislature should prevail over that of one man, be it Washington or Jefferson. Thus was his ideological commitment to an idea of representative democracy over anything that could possibly be construed as tyranny. Though he certainly had his faults, Jefferson's idealism is arguably one of the most admirable of his qualities. After Washington had these two responses in hand, he sent them on to the Treasury Secretary on the 16th, who spent the next few days crafting a response. Hamilton knew this was the make or break for his entire overall fiscal plan. He consulted with Philadelphia lawyer William Lewis, with the two spending an afternoon in Lewis's garden going over Hamilton's arguments point by point. Meanwhile, Washington asked Madison to develop a draft veto of the bank bill, just in case he was unconvinced by Hamilton's arguments. This draft, dated February 21st, contained two options based on whether Washington objected to the constitutionality of the bill, or if he felt that, quote, it appears to be unequal between the public and the institution in favor of the institution. The night before his self-imposed deadline, Hamilton stayed up throughout the night, pouring over his draft with his wife, Eliza Hamilton, recounting years later that she was by his side as night turned into day, and Hamilton put the finishing touches on the report which he delivered to Washington on February 23rd. Washington sat down the next day and pored over Hamilton's lengthy report, in which, after a quick introduction, Hamilton immediately goes after the objections of Jefferson and Randolph to the, quote, authority of the United States to erect corporations, and asserts, quote, Now, it appears to the Secretary of the Treasury that this general principle of incorporation is inherent in the very definition of government and essential to every step in the progress to be made by that of the United States. Namely, that every power vested in a government is in nature sovereign and includes by force of the term a right to employ all the means requisite and fairly applicable to the attainment of the ends of such power and which are not precluded by restrictions and exemptions specified in the Constitution, are not immoral, are not contrary to the essential ends of political society. He goes on to state that, quote, where the authority of the government is general, it can create corporations in all cases, but where it is confined to certain branches of legislation, it can create corporations only in those cases. In Hamilton's view of governmental authority, there are limits but quote, if the end be clearly comprehended within any of the specified powers, and if the measure have an obvious relation to that end, and is not forbidden by any particular provision of the Constitution, it may safely be deemed to come within the compass of the national authority. Hamilton's arguments for a broad interpretation of the Constitution would carry forward through the ages on to the present day. For me, I am reminded of Theodore Roosevelt, who revered Hamilton in his own time as an ideological forefather from his home state and fully embraced, as no other president had before, this idea of, if something is not expressly forbidden by the Constitution, then it is constitutional. Hamilton's arguments would ultimately win out, as the day after he read Hamilton's lengthy report, Washington would sign the bill into law, creating the First Bank of the United States. Future Chief Justice John Marshall would later on mark the debate over the bank bill as a pivotal point in American history in his biography of Washington when he wrote that, quote, This measure, i.e., the bank bill, made a deep impression on many members of the legislature and contributed, not inconsiderably, to the complete organization of those distinct and visible parties which, in their long and dubious conflict for power, have since shaken the United States to their center. Reading the congressional debates, then the opposing viewpoints within the administration itself, it is hard to interpret this moment in any other way than its being a decisive and divisive moment in the nation's history. Indeed, it is around this time that the divisions that had been fomenting in the halls of power began to bubble out into the public arena. As a pro bank commentator noted, there seems to have been little public discussion either for or against the bank proposal as it was going through Congress. However, this issue seems to have convinced certain leaders such as Jefferson and Madison that the divisions within the government were sharp, and, if they were to get an edge on their opponents, they may need to think of a new strategy that would leverage new power and influence outside of government. If they were to argue on behalf of power being retained by that government which was closest to the people, who best to recruit in the battle than the people themselves? It must be remarked, though, That one of the last acts of the first Congress was to strengthen the Union by adding one more to its number. Though Vermont had played a role in the American Revolution, thank Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys, as well as the Battle of Hubbardton, part of the Saratoga Campaign, which our old friend Arthur St. Clair was involved in, they were still subject to competing claims by New York and New Hampshire that their Green Mountains were in actuality a part of one or the other of those states. The Vermonters, however, felt they were entitled to be a state in and of themselves, and thus, after the Revolution, had petitioned the Congress under the Articles of Confederation for statehood. As with many things, that body dragged their feet to the point that overtures began to be floated to the Vermonters by the British for them to become a province of Canada. With a more capable and efficient government in place, the U.S., following the ratification of the Constitution, began anew to work with Vermont, and finally, On February 18, 1791, while Washington was deliberating over the bank, Congress passed a bill to admit Vermont as the 14th State of the Union, effective as of March 4th. The remarkable thing about this bill is that Vermont was admitted as a co-equal state with the original 13. Same method of representation, same authority, everything. Again, this is one of those precedents that we don't think much about nowadays. It's taken for granted that, should we admit another state to the Union, of course it'd be on equal standing as the rest. But this was not a guarantee in the early days of the government. And indeed, there were thoughts that Vermont should only come in under some kind of secondary status. However, on March 4th, the day after the first Congress adjourned, Vermont became the 14th state of the Union. Like it or not, the nation was growing and changing. For better or worse, would be for the Washington administration the incoming second congress, and the American people to decide. For now though, we must leave our story here. I realize that this was a lengthier episode than usual, but all of these events occurring simultaneously seemed to fit so well together that I felt it best to just keep going on to a good stopping point. As always, I value your feedback. Please feel free to send any comments or complaints to Podcast all one word, at gmail.com or you can reach out via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. I'm also available on Twitter at presidencies89. Sources used for this episode, and it's a lengthy list this time, thanks to all the primary documents consulted, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, That's presidencies.blueberry.com. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, friends. Until next time. <music>